Hola, mi gente. My name is Jessica Yanez, and I want you to join me for some wine and chisme. The Wine and Chisme podcast was created to amplify voices across communities of color, all while drinking a glass of wine. From wine talk, interviews, and recaps of all things pop culture, join me every Wednesday for the chisme. Please make sure to check out the Wine and Chisme podcast and other amazing podcasts as part of the Latina Podcasters Network. Hola, hola, mi gente. I'm Jessica Yanez, and this is the Wine and Chisme podcast. A podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from BIPOC communities doing remarkable things. All while sipping on a glass of wine. So welcome to your new Wednesday. The Wine and Chisme Wednesday. well i see you have a beard going on now yeah i'm getting old and shaggy (laughs) (laughs) well you look good and i'm so glad to see your face i was so off my kilter this morning (laughs) was by and i was like i need to get something to eat i was about to turn into the drive driveway drive through wouldn't know whatever drive drive through driveway sorry And I the notification came on of your podcast. I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, I need to get something to eat anyways, because I'm gonna be drinking wine. So <laughs> Yeah, so, God forbid you get you get shit faced on your own podcast. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be the first time, let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's be honest, it would not be the first time, and I'm it certainly will not be the last, right? Uh, but before we get into all of the chisme and me asking you all of the questions, I want us to share the wines that we're drinking. I know you, I just kind of picked something up or actually a friend had brought me something. So that's what I'm drinking, but what are you drinking? And then I'll talk about what I'm drinking. So I was, I was actually at the, at the supermarket yesterday, interesting story to, to buy a bottle of wine. And then I just kind of had this creative flash about cooking um, a tuna tower. I was like, well, you know, a Sapporo beer would go really good with a tuna tower. So that's what I'm drinking today, actually. Is a nice, nice. Well, I am drinking a Tisdale Pinot Grigio of California. And this is what it says. It says, our experienced winemakers have created this light-bodied Pinot Grigio with citrus fruit notes and a refreshing finish. Perfectly paired with salads, light pasta dishes, or grilled chicken, we invite you to enjoy our exceptional wine and share in life's endless possibilities. <laughs> They're really going there. But I, it's, it's a light wine, so I'm like, all right, cool. It's a light one, so I'm, I'm going to be all right with that. So, salud, my friend. Yes, I love it. And I love when I have a white wine, I love the real citrusy ones because... I don't like very sweet wine. So the ones that tend to be more citrusy, a little bit more tart are definitely up my alley. Yeah. I mean, for me, when I drink wine, I, t- I typically go more on the dry end. And then I also cook a lot with wine as well. So I know. Well, I'm so excited to have you on because I remember when we met, we met through a mutual friend who... Well, she was through Annette Soto, I think is the one who had introduced us. I think me and Annette were together and then she, you guys saw each other and like connected and then she introduced us. Indeed. I, I'm trying to remember the exact time. Cause I mean, it seems like, I mean, it must've been what, six years ago. Five Maybe. Or six. Yeah. Yeah. It totally had to have been. Wow. That long already. Yeah. Cause I remember I just started working at Tarrant County college and I was still doing like the suit thing because, you know, working for a public institution, you want to make an impression. And then yeah, years later, yeah, forget all that. All my suits are getting ruined. I'm on the job site all the time. Boots, T-shirt, we're making it happen. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. I cannot believe it's already been that long because, yeah, I've been in, back in California in almost four years. In the end of January to be four years that I've been back in California. So, yeah, it has to be at least six years that we've known each other now. I know, yeah, and I think the last time we actually connected was uh, I was at a conference in L.A. I think it was L.A. Commotion, if I recall. Yeah. 
we we hooked up for a real quick breakfast. I can't even remember the name of the place, but we had some awesome like salmon and eggs. So it was pretty cool. Yes, we had a good time. It was so nice seeing you. I was on my way to Santa Barbara. So that's when we met because I stopped because I was meeting some other friends in Santa Barbara. But I was like, well, Jesse's here. I got to see him. So look at look at me being a good friend. (laughs) Here's us both. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's so nuts that like, seriously, when I think of it, I'm like, wow, that's totally crazy. So but I know like I grew I mean, I lived in Dallas for 15 years. That's where we met. Actually, technically, we met in Fort Worth. Let me, I know there's let, cause I don't want people to come after me. Cause I know how Dallas and Fort Worth people are like, I mean, both of these are great. I mean, I've lived in both. Um, I, you know, they both have their pros and cons and I mean, it's been an enjoyable adventure living in both cities and enjoying, you know, the pleasantries that both provide, you know, I mean, again, different vibes, but it's, you know, yeah. to them, you know, well, you are, you grew up in Fort Worth though. Born and raised. I spent all my life except three years in, in Fort Worth. So it's it's been interesting really watching the city change and, you know, become what it's becoming. Yeah. So tell me about, because obviously I know that you grew up in Fort Worth and I know that you've had a pretty tumultuous growing up, I guess is what the word I will use. Um, why don't you tell me about what it was like growing up in Fort Worth what the things that you would hear in regards to how you felt in regards to growing up in Fort Worth versus how you would hear things about Dallas and then kind of some of the things you got involved in while you were still young. Yeah. I mean, so I guess the first thing that kind of comes, comes to mind when you think of Fort Worth is, you know, it's where, you know, where the West begins. So it's kind of a cowboy town, a lot of Very you know, much. speakers around. And I mean, living there, you, you find out that's not the case. I mean, there's a lot of diversity in Fort Worth. Um, that's not always marketed very well. I mean, we have a large Latino base. We got some of the best Latino restaurants, I'm going to say, in DFW. I mean, if you want to get some damn good pieria tacos or just, you know, taquitos, I mean, we got that stuff down, especially when you start hitting up the north side and the south side. So I think we have to know that going into, like, there's a lot of diversity. It's a very, it's a very heavy working class city. And in fact, a lot of the architecture that we have that's most reminiscent, you know, specifically the Kimball, pays homage to that working class history. The Kimball was actually modeled after the old grain silos from near Southside. And you can, in back in the day, you could actually see the grain silos from where the Kimball currently sits. So Louis Kahn- The Kimball Art Museum, let's just be like clear. Yeah, and so he actually took the form to kind of play homage to that working class family. So it's a very artistic expression, which kind of leads into another thing that for I think is well known for, but maybe not well marketed is our art scene. I mean, we have some very talented artists in Fort Worth. Uh, and I dare say we have some of the best art shows, you know, reoccurring art shows in in our area. I mean, they may not have the big, bold and, you know, dazzle effect that Dallas has, but I mean, there's some real talent there and it often gets unsung. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of great things that Fort Worth brings and it's got this kind of chill vibe. Everyone's real friendly. Everyone's kind of go get ready to work with you, ready to meet you. You know, it's a very easy town to kind of get established and get, you know, to to get uh, familiar with. I found that very, I found a very different experience when I was in Dallas. Like it's, you know, do go big or go home. And if you ain't got a name behind your brand or a name behind you or some money behind you, then people really ain't going to pay attention to you. Like I found my, it a lot harder to establish connections in Dallas. And, you know, that's just me coming from an outsider from Fort Worth coming into Dallas. So I think, you know, you know, in the high point, those are probably the two distinctions that I found. Um, Dallas does offer a lot more diverse mix of entertainment. Uh, they do have a lot more diversity in terms of just population, food. Um, and then if you want to have a, you know, a proper nightlife, you got to go to Dallas. You ain't getting in for, you'll get yeah. some bars, you'll get some Tejano dancing. But if you want to do a proper club, you go into Dallas. That's yeah. point blank. You want to go to a concert you go into dallas yeah it's you know it's strange that you're it's funny you say that because obviously i mean you're in fort worth i moved to dallas from california so i truly did not know anybody but i didn't find it that hard to get connected with people and maybe it's just i found the right people at the right time as they were kind of blowing up as well and they were like we want you to come come with us 
because I didn't feel like, now I definitely in certain places, I, in certain instances, I felt like that. I still, I felt like Dallas is very vapid sometimes. And so there was definitely instances where I did feel that. I feel like Fort Worth felt more um, small town. Mm-hmm. But that I like, I like the bigger towns, right? I like the, I like the Dallas feel. I like the city feel. So for me, that was more comfortable. And I appreciate Fort Worth. Um, the few times that I've spent some real time out there, I've probably spent maybe like less than 10 times have I spent some quality time in Fort Worth, but I always had a good time. That's for sure. Oh yeah. And I mean, I think I could say the same about Dallas. I mean, I've always had a good time when I, you know, um, when I socialize in Dallas, I mean, there's just some things in Dallas that I can't get in for, you know, mm-hmm. so I appreciate Dallas for that. I mean, in fact, some of my favorite restaurants are in Dallas, Celebration Cafe and then the Seafood Shack. I mean, two of the yeah. best restaurants in DFW. And I have been to Joti Garcia's. Yeah. I've been like, I went there. Well, that was when I first moved. Like I had a, 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 a guy I dated was like, we need to go. And I was like, all right. But how, so... I know, like I said, that you have been involved in a lot of kind of different things growing up. So tell me about, just tell me about your experience growing up in Fort Worth and kind of when you were in school and the things that you ended up getting involved in, because I know by the time you were a teenager, you were involved in gangs, but how did that even happen? Like, how do you go from like, what type of neighborhood and what, how did you grow up that? you got pulled into that type of life. Absolutely. So I think that's an awesome segue because I think one of the things I realized when I was living in Dallas is that I had this chip on my shoulder and a lot of that came from my previous life. So it was very difficult for me to trust people and really establish relationships. So, you know, I think to go back to Dallas and give it a second chance, it may be a very different experience. So my journey into the gang life started right around middle school and high school. Um, and just to give a little back history, you know, my mother, you know, for the most part, raised me on her own until I was about six years old. And then she, you know, married my stepfather, who was an amazing man. So the household that I lived in wasn't necessarily what you think of, you know, being, you know, in the middle of the hood where we're seeing drive-bys every day and there's drugs and, you know, gang warfare just on my day-to-day life. I mean, I grew up in a working class neighborhood. Life was relatively great. I mean, you know, the bills were paid, never had to worry about going hungry. You know, we had a little extra money to spend on Christmas, go on vacation here and there. So, I mean, for the most part, it was a pretty cushy life. I mean, did I have, you know, the the flyest, you know, kicks or the best outfits? No, by no means. But, you know, I didn't also have to worry about missing a meal. So um, what really got me into it was, you know, mockery. Uh, and it wasn't mockery from whites or blacks, it was actually mockery from our own people. Growing up, I didn't speak Spanish. And even to this day, I don't speak Spanish very well. My stepfather is also black. He's from New York. So I picked up a lot of his charm and also got a lot of flack for that. And the school district that I ended up going to was Crowley. And at this time, it was kind of more of, um, I wouldn't say elite, but it was definitely, you know, kind of a top tier school district. Mm-hmm. So you had a lot, you know, well-established families that were attend, you know, that were sending their kids to these to the school district. So, you know, amongst the general population, I was kind of on the bottom tier in terms of economic and class. You know, I didn't have as quite as much money as my friends and have quite as nice of a car, quite as nice of clothes. And I had to work a lot more. So I got a lot of flack, you know, for primarily for not speaking Spanish. Um, this became a reoccurring theme. And, you know, the phrase that I always remember that still, you know, draws a little bit of rage to this day is you're not a real Mexican. You're, you know, you're a gringo, you're a, you're a, you know, you're a coconut or whatever mm. derogatory term that they wanted to use. And this became just frequent over and over and over. Yeah. And to go a little bit into the history, you know, my mother didn't teach us Spanish because, again, she was a single class working woman and she grew up in the rural South during the 50s. And if you understand your history, speaking Spanish in these towns came with a level of threat. The white people would pick on you. The teachers would pick on you. Uh, it would often lead to fights or other derogatory things. So in response to that, she taught all of her children English first so we could acclimate to the education system. And it's just kind of ironic that it was my own people that ended up putting me on this path. So that is so I, you know, I've heard that time and time again, that's very similar to our story as well, because I think when it comes to 
our generation, right? And we're, we're exennials. We're on that verge of Gen X and millennial, but there was a lot of that because people didn't understand if you're not first generation, which I'm second generation. And if you're not first generation, that what your, your parents bared the brunt of speaking Spanish when they were kids, same as my parents, my dad grew up in Brownsville. My mom, you know, is from Southern California and they couldn't speak Spanish. They would get in trouble, like you said. So I think you're so right. We need to know our history because saying somebody's not a real Mexican or a real wherever they're from, whatever Latin American country they're from, that they're not real because they don't speak Spanish. That just shows the night. I want to say night nativity, but it's not really that. It's more of the... Oh, I'm going to think of the word in a second. Dang it. I can't think of the word all of a sudden, but it just shows, goes to show like, first of all, how quick we are to point fingers at each other. Right. And how quick we are to, to put each other down within our community. But then it just also shows how uneducated we are in regards to realizing that and wanting and being so easily manipulated to make fun of others because of that. Yeah. And I mean, it still happens to this day. I witness it, you know, well, before COVID, I was witnessing it quite frequently. I mean, you know, it's just a subtle jab. Oh, you know, you don't speak Spanish. Oh, you don't speak Spanish. But after a while, it starts building up to something, or at least in my case, it did. Yeah. You know, I mean, I could go on a whole rant on the history of language and whether or not we should really resonate with Spanish that well, because I mean, depending if you identify your Spanish roots or your indigenous roots, I mean, there's a certain level of um, complexity and maybe threat that comes with Spanish as a language. You know, if you resonate yeah. with the indigenous side, then, you know, that was a language forced upon you. It was oppressive. <laughs> um, so is it really worth celebrating to the extent that we do? But then again, there's a side of pride that comes with that because it's one of the first spoken languages in America. So, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to look at it and it just adds to the complexity of who we are as a culture. But again, I'm going on a little bit of a tangent. So um, this mockery kind of built up over middle school. It built up over high school. And as I got, you know, kind of deeper into my bubble, you know, I was fortunate enough, unfortunate enough during high school to find a group of guys that were kind of going through this. Uh, the same thing, you know, didn't have a lot of Spanish, you know, kind of getting mocked a lot. And then, you know, I cut, I got subtly invited to join this crew and kind of hang out with them. And as I got deeper into it, you know, I started getting, finding myself getting attached to these folks. You know, these started becoming more than just friendships. This started becoming a brotherhood. Um, and again, a little backdrop into my history up to this point, my family had basically dissolved. All I had was basically my core members, which was my stepfather, my mother, and my sister. My biological father wasn't really present much of my life during uh, during middle school and high school. Um, and then the, the family I did have on my mother's side, uh, after my grandfather passed, there was a huge feud that erupted because of the will. And very long story short, money, money always does it, right? It drove a huge wedge. And so I lost contact with basically all the family I had in South Texas. My, my mother in her attempt to protect me and keep me from repeating some of the uh, the mistakes that my other siblings made with going to prison, selling drugs, getting involved in gang warfare, you know, kept me from seeing certain uh family members. So my dad's side of the family, you know, she was very cautious about that. You know, certain members from my mother's side of the family, she was also very cautious about. So I wasn't really allowed to hang out with my brothers that much. I wasn't allowed to hang out with any of my cousins or brothers on my dad's side because she just didn't want me to get involved in the drug activity. And I mean, it's just something that ran constant in our family. And a lot of my brothers ended up in the penitentiary because of drugs and because of gang warfare. Did that cause resentment towards your mother because you were unable to associate with other family members like your brothers and stuff? I don't remember it causing resentment. It just caused more isolation. And I guess once the mockery started, it it started getting to alienation, you know, where I didn't even really feel like I was human, you know, some of the time. So when I found, you know, discovered this group of friends and, you know, we started, you know, hanging out and, you know, getting closer. I mean, this is what I attached to that became my family. You know, and it was ride or die right after that. I mean, there wasn't very much I wasn't willing to do uh, to appease and satisfy these friends. Um, so this got into roughly about a three, four year journey, which started out mainly, you know, as 
I would assume most young men, you know, just going out, drinking, having a good time, maybe getting into a little trouble here and there. As we got deeper into it, drugs got involved. Uh, some of my friends were buying and selling cocaine, buying and selling marijuana. Pills start getting introduced and that started, you know, making things interesting for my friends as they were taking them. And, you know, this all finessed up to where, you know, they went from drinking to robbing houses to robbing people in the street at the nightclubs um, where the finale was uh, in Northside Fort So for those that aren't familiar with Fort back in the day, Northside was a huge strip. You would go down North Main, it was a big cruising joint. So everyone would go in there in their lowriders, their souped up, you know, SUVs and show off their systems, their rims. I mean, it it was like Little Vegas right in the middle of Fort I mean, even got to the point where people were bringing out barbecue grills and just setting up shop there, you know, around seven, eight o'clock at night and just grilling and watching all the mayhem go down. I mean, it was crazy, but it was also a rocking good time. So <laughs> and a lot of hours out there. And I remember, uh, you know, as we were getting more entrenched in this crew, I remember this story. You know, we were we were driving into Northside. We had just begun a night and it was me and my best friend at the time. And he was one of the crew leads and he hung a bandana outside, uh, right on top of our rear view mirror. And it caught the attention of one of our rivals in the Diamond Hill. And it happened so fast. I mean, it's, it's hard to remember all the details, but a gun gets pulled out, you know, and we're in bumper to bumper traffic. And my buddy's, you know, still kind of, you know, trying to, you know, agitate some stuff. And I finally make the decision just to go right into, you know, head on into traffic to try to get away from this scenario. And this guy gets a shot off. And it goes through the back window. It grazes the cheek of the young lady that was sitting in the backseat, goes through the headrest, and it hits my buddy right in the neck. Oh, my gosh. We're panicking. And, like, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to have to take this guy to the hospital. And, like, this is it. It's a wrap for my ass. And by grace of God, you know, either through alignments in the universe, whatever belief system you want to take, the bullet ricocheted off his necklace and he survived. Are you serious? I'm serious. So craziest thing, but you know, me being the hard head and the knucklehead I was, it wasn't enough. I still stayed pretty attached to this crew and, you know, it ended up resulting in, you know, I guess you could say, uh, uh, return action. Uh, you know, we ended up identifying the guys, you know, it led to some additional beef. Um, and then eventually it got squashed by some of the crew lead. But I mean, it was a pretty tumultuous past, as you would say. And, you know, that was probably one of the pinnacles. The thing that eventually got me out was the thing that eventually got that, you know, essentially got me in was betrayal. I don't want to expose too much of the details, but let's just say, you know, right when I turned 18, you know, there was this pop and nightclub in Dallas called DMX and everyone was going. Oh, I remember DMX. Yeah. <laughs> was the place. I remember DMX. That was the place to be. Uh, so I was like, all right. I and just- there was always fights. Every single time you go, there's always a ruckus at DMX. And not even the guys, the gals, like the gals were the ones really throwing down. Like they started most of the shit. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got a whole nother story just about that. I mean, I dated someone from DMX and woo-hoo, that was uh, <laughs> that was an experience just in its own. But like we're heading to DMX and we had a call from one of the crew leads to go back. And long story short, you know, my buddies ended up getting into, a, a, you know, starting some shit. And it ends up leading to a detective getting called onto a case. And my name gets dropped, you know, by my friends to go testify in front of this detective. And I mean, I have a very, I have a heavy choice to make. Do I, you know, stand by the truth of what I witnessed and what actually went on and betray my family? You know, or do I, do I take this with me? And if I end up going down, I go down, you know, and there was also kind of a subtle moment of fear too, because if I do tell the truth, there could be repercussions for that. So. You know, I stuck to the story and, you know, again, by the grace of God, you know, either through the alignment of the universe, again, pick your belief. um, The story stuck right after that. You know, everyone in the crew either disbanded, went to the military or, you know, unfortunately, someone got locked up. So it gave me an ample opportunity to get out. Right after that, I enrolled in college. I just disappeared for four years, erased my number, all their numbers, changed my phone number. I mean, just went into a void. And that for me was was probably the most difficult part, leaving that life behind, uh, leaving my family behind, basically. And what resulted was a 10 year struggle 
trying to repair my sense of civility and my perception of people. I mean, leading into college, I didn't like people. To me, people were only going to betray you because all that I knew up to that point was that a friend is eventually going to betray my right. family. At that, they had betrayed me. And then I had maybe one or two friends that were kind of left after that whole episode. And one of them ended up selling me out for a $200 referral to some bootleg mechanic. And I ended up up fucking up my car. So like, I didn't want to have anything to do with anybody. So like, brutally honest, I just, you know, was looking at it for me and like, this even, you know, applied to my dating life. Like I didn't give two shits about a person and that's just how it was. So it, it took a while to kind of get back to normal. Um, and then once I got enough bumps on the head and, you know, the grace of some friends that, you know, gave me their patience and, you know, helped mentor me, I was, I guess, able to reemerge as a, a standing citizen that could actually, you know, comprehend people and contribute to society. That is so awesome, Jesse. I like I didn't know some of this stuff about you because I just knew you from starting when you worked at Tarrant County College. You went to UT Arlington, right? And you majored in architecture? I did. What pulled you towards architecture? What was like, I mean, you went from being, you were you were in a gang, right? You basically go from this life and you're saying you don't trust anybody and what was your journey in college? Like, how was that? How did you navigate that that journey to go from not trusting anybody? Because when you're in college and when you're in university, you have to trust yourself, right? You, you don't you can't go through life not trusting anybody, because if you have if if anything, you have to be able to trust yourself that this is what you want to do. And this is your and that you're able to do it. So how were you able to kind of move from one thing or to the other? Or were you always, did you always feel like you could always trust yourself? Yeah. So let me answer the first part. So what originally drove me into architecture was the creative aspect of architecture. There's a lot of creative freedom with the design industry and specifically with architecture. There's a lot of different ways you can apply it. But I think what really drove me into it was video games. And it wasn't even really playing the video games. It was what they call modding. So going in there, making my own custom levels, making my own custom maps, making my own custom units and just tinkering with stuff. That really intrigued me. Like, and I would just spend hours, you know, entrapped in these worlds, building these little perfect cities, laying out all the gravel roads and like positioning all the the armies and the intricate details of this map. You know, so that was kind of the initial driver. Um, Originally, too, I I wanted to do, um, I originally wanted to do fashion design, but I just didn't really think I could find a job doing that. And then I I got intrigued with uh, designing yachts, but the only school that taught it was in Miami. So architecture became a really good third choice, and I ended up just falling in love with it. Um, And I think the isolating nature really helped me with this career path because it's a very arduous degree to accomplish. I mean, it requires a lot of hours, a lot of concentration. So in some ways, this isolation benefited me with accomplishing my, uh, my, my degree, but it was also, there was also some cons to it as well. I mean, I was very insecure about myself. So I found myself judging myself, over critiquing my work. And I became somewhat of a, a perfectionist Um, and not a good perfectionist. Like, you know, I just kept, I was never satisfied with my work and this made it very difficult for me because I would always have to go back and change something or go change this or go change this or tweak this. So I would often find myself up, you know, in the wee hours of the morning more excessively than, than needed trying to get my work done. Um, and the fact that I didn't really want to, you know, engage with any uh, people made it much more difficult because I wasn't able to really utilize the, the power of the critique or, you know, peer review to help me with my work. So it, it was a tough journey. Um, it, I started loosening up some in my junior year. I was like, all right, I'll give this people thing a try. Went to a party, got way too intoxicated and ended up staying the night over there only to come to find out that someone, you know, had uh, taken advantage of me while I was intoxicated and this drove me right back into this hole of not trusting people again. So like, wait, what do you like, what do you mean taking advantage of? So they did some improper stuff and took a photo of it. You know, they, I think it was like what they call it teabagging. And this guy took a photo of it. And then he, I went to this other party and he was showing it to everyone there, showing it to all the women, 
So everyone got a nice little chuckle about that except me. And that started bringing some of that rage that I had let go. And it was just by grace that my cousin was there. And he was like, hey, man, we need to go. Like, get shit. We're getting the fuck out of here. We're, we're leaving this place before we both do something stupid. Oh, so, my gosh. So, again, that, that drove me back into, into the hole. And I never came out until, you know, five or six years later. Because um, at that point, it's like, all right, yeah, like thesis confirmed, theory confirmed, people are... It was almost like every time you would give people a chance, they would disappoint you. Yep. Damn, that... I cannot imagine that, Jesse, seriously. That is a lot to have to overcome. And honestly, that's a form of, of sexual assault, to be perfectly honest. Like, that's... I cannot believe that somebody would do that and then show pictures and think that that's funny. That's not funny at all. No, it wasn't. Um, and the only benefit of the doubt that I give, I, I don't know what I may have said or done while I was intoxicated. Because again, I wasn't necessarily a great human being to be around, but it still was very aggravating. Well, it doesn't matter what you said or did. People, that, that's not right in any way, shape or form. So you said you were going through this for another five or six years. When you graduated and finally graduated UT Arlington, where did you go? Because that means you're still in this process of not trusting people, not wanting to be around people. So where do you go? You have a degree, you know, it's time to start looking for a job or, or at least taking your next, next step towards something. And if you don't trust anybody, where do you go? What do you do? So I was fortunate with a couple of things. Um, one is I had a really good support system of my parents, which I'll get into a little bit more detail here in a bit. Uh, but I was also fortunate that, you know, I, I was very hireable outside of college. Uh, I was able to get a job at a small firm up in Bedford right after graduating. And that's where I spent my first year. Unfortunate. Uh, that's also the year the recession hit and my career choice basically became irrelevant. I got laid off, uh, tried to find another architecture or design related position, and they just were not available. No one was hiring architects. So I was like, OK, well, we'll brush this off. Maybe I'll go get a, you know, a job at Office Depot, Best Buy, uh, Kinko's, maybe somewhere where I can use some of my design skills. And I was overqualified because I had a degree. So couldn't get a job at Kinko's, couldn't get a job at Office Depot, couldn't get a job at any of these places where I could use Photoshop or any of these graphic skills because, well, you're just going to leave us. So we don't want to hire you. So eventually I had to take my degree off of my resume and my application in order to get a job. Wow. Uh, that's crazy. I mean, here we, we're always being told you need a degree, you need a degree. And you're like, I have, I'm this, I'm doing what people say I'm supposed to do and I can't find a job. I couldn't. And I mean, I, when I pulled the uh, degree off and I mean, mind you, I'd applied at Kinko's, I applied at Office Depot, Best Buy. I even applied at uh, this shuttle, what is it, super shuttle, just to be a driver and oh, you're overqualified. So once I pulled it off, I applied for UPS and Macy's and ended up getting both of those jobs. And it was just kind of this, I don't know, this kind of dark period in my life. Cause it's like, man, I've done all this work, you know, I've come all this way and, you know, people are telling me this is the right thing to do. And this is it. Like, this is the best I can get. I would imagine it was even harder because of all the baggage you were still carrying with you. It was. And I mean, to make things even more uh, difficult, I made my first major purchase that year. Right before I got laid off, I bought a brand new car like most college students. Uh, kind of going back to the previous story about my friend fucking up my car. I mean, that car was a piece of shit. It had, you know, they, the guy that, that did it, let it painted it. I wanted it painted emerald green. He painted it a dark green. He let it dry outside in nature. So it had all these little things just embedded in the what? All the hubcaps were different because it was the Walmart hubcap, so they kept on falling off. And then I had, I used to have a system in the car, but it got broken into so many times. Like you could see where the windows that got busted out had tent and the ones that didn't. So they used to say, I wasn't taking anyone out on a date in one of the, in, in that. <laughs> I was like, all right, maybe this is the first step, like, you know, kind of brush things up, you know, get me back in the society. So I bought, you know, I bought my car and then I get laid off. And I get to the end of the year and I only had $5 to my name. And again, I, it goes back to my parents really providing me a place of shelter because uh, without them, more likely I would have ended up in the street. Uh, and given my past, it would have been a, it would have been really easy for me to get back in that lifestyle. So both of these jobs were contract jobs. They terminated right after the holidays. I kind of find myself on unemployment for about another month and then ended up landing a gig over at this uh, logistics factory 
assembling cell phones. And it was the closest thing I could, I could think of as a, or I could find that was a sweatshop in Fort Worth. Uh, the shift started around 3 PM and ended at about two in the morning. So it didn't even give me enough time to actually go get a beer at the bar, like decompress my day. I just, you know, my only option is to go home. So that lasted for about four months. And then, you know, this is when I started networking again. And I was fortunate enough to find a, um, uh, a business owner that was looking for some help. And I just called this guy every day, like, look, man, what you got? I don't care what it is. I'll get you coffee. I'll type up your reports. I'll sweep the office. I just want out this goddamn factory. And eventually, you know, a position became open and him and my future supervisor gave me a chance to, uh, to, to prove myself. And uh, I spent about two years with that company got my feet wet with uh, construction and the design building industry. And then from there, I kind of, you know, built my legacy around construction. Um, that company ended up going under about two years later uh, because of the economy, ended up with a trade construction office out of Dallas. And then that's when I moved to Dallas. I spent about two years with them doing HVAC and plumbing. Uh, I also taught intermittently um, at four or five SD. And then that company started getting hit by the market. And then I eventually made myself, I uh, found myself at TCC working for my old supervisor from the construction company. Um, so TCC meaning Tarrant County Colleges. Yep, Tarrant County College. And that was my first stable job leaving college. So it took me roughly about five years to get to stability um, after leaving college. And from there, that actually gave me enough time to kind of decompress, kind of examine what's going on, pay off some bills, travel a little bit, actually see the world um, and get reestablished with my community because, you know, I was starting to kind of get involved with the chamber and all these other community events right when I started my career and all that went away once, you know, the recession hit. So right. that for me was a pivotal, pivotal part of my journey uh, and kind of getting reestablished. And uh, I spent seven years with them. I think it's really important what you said that it took you at least five years to get something stable, because I think so many people come straight out of college or go to move to a new area and think, oh, it's everything's going to be fine immediately. And it's okay to find your footing. It's okay. Things are not always going to be perfect, right? Things happen, economy, whatever. Right now, this year, obviously, 2020 has been a fucked up year. And with COVID and everything. And it's okay. Like it's okay to stumble. It's okay to not find everything being perfect right after you get out of college. And I think one thing that you also said without straight out saying it, but what I got from what you just said is you just never gave up. Like you just never, you were just constantly looking, you were constantly trying to find something. Even you had to adjust taking your degree off of your resume. You found when you found somebody that you wanted to work for, you were like, Hey, what can I do? How can I do it? And I think that's also something that we need to remind ourselves of, right? When there is tough times that we just cannot give up because if you give up on yourself, nobody's going to ever want to take a chance on you. If you don't even want to take a chance on yourself. Yeah, I would agree with that, but I would also add this to it as well. I mean, I had to I had a really good support system and that's going to be a constant theme of today's conversation, especially as we start talking about my work is just that support system, you know, as simple as it may sound, having my parents, having a stable household and having the confidence that if things did go astray, I could go back to them, I think was a huge aspect of this confidence that I had Yeah. about that. You know, if I was truly alone and I didn't have a place to stay, I think this would put it would have put my priorities in a very different perspective. You know, I'd be choosing, all right, where am I going to get my next meal? How am I going to make sure I get enough money to survive the next week, you know, instead of looking, you know, that week or that month ahead. So yes, the drive was an important part, but the drive was only because I had this great support system. And I think oftentimes in our stories, we forget to express that. I agree with you because I feel the same way when I, there was times when I was in Dallas that I felt like, oh my gosh, but I never felt, I never felt like I was going to be on the street. Cause I was like, I ha- even in Dallas, even though my family wasn't there, I was like, God forbid something happens. I have friends that will help me. God forbid something happens. I can always move back to California and my parents would help bring me back to California. So I think you're right about that. I think we underestimate having a support system. 
And we take it for granted when we have it because sometimes we don't think about it. So I appreciate you bringing that up. So I know that you spent time thinking about a few of the things that you wanted to do when you were at Tarrant County College, but now you founded this nonprofit co-act. Correct. I want like, I was reading about it and I, and it just really sounds really awesome. And not that I would ever doubt anything that you're going to do, because I know we talked about different things that you wanted to do, but this is actually a little bit different than even the things that we were discussing. So I want to hear from you, what exactly is co-act and what prompted you to start this versus some of the other things that you were talking about previously. Yeah, cool. So COACT is a nonprofit social impact organization, and we help explore, discover, and deploy community-centered solutions. We operate under the the methodology of uh, human-centered design. So by adopting this methodology, for us, it's really about connecting with the individuals that have the most to gain the individuals that we're trying to serve and making sure that they're an integral part of the process as we come to develop solutions. And this is going to go back to what I recognize, you know, practicing architecture and also uh, working at Tarrant County College. In practicing architecture, what became very apparent is there's a huge separation between myself as the designer and the individual that ultimately becomes the tenant of the space that I design. So in the case of practicing architecture, I was designing multifamily facilities specifically for seniors with disabilities. I never met any of these tenants. So everything that I designed was based on assumption, based on the theories that I learned in school and the guidelines that the code offered me. We would go and audit the spaces after construction and we would find discrepancies or issues that made it very difficult to utilize the space. And we followed the code, we followed our theories to the T but there were still discrepancies. And at that point, there's not really much we can do. The project's already built. So we just take it as a lesson learned and move on to the next one. And that may be a discrepancy that causes, you know, discomfort for whoever is utilizing that space. Similar in Tarrant County College, I found the same thing. We were designing solutions in silos. So if you were a professor and you wanted me to design a new classroom for you, I would go hire an architect, go hire an engineer, and then design what we thought was a good classroom based on the most advanced technology. And we would kick you out of your space, build it, move you back in without involving you or coordinating with you very much. And it was a very unpleasant experience. You know, we got a lot of complaints about this. And ultimately what we found out is that, you know, the spaces that we were designing didn't really meet the pedagogies or the needs of the individuals that were gonna be using. You know, we went based on what leadership told us. So, What I implemented when I joined Tarrant County College was this very human-centered framework. And the idea is very simple, but very often practiced. Let's just meet with the clients. Let's meet with the people that are actually gonna be using the space. Let's meet with the students and let's make them a part of the process of designing this space. It doesn't necessarily guarantee that we're gonna be able to deliver everything that they want, but they're a part of the journey. They get stake in making decisions. And when we do come to those crossroads where, all right, you know, the budget's not gonna necessarily meet the need, where do we want to start trimming? They have the power to be able to make those decisions and say, okay, why don't we focus on this instead? And then we, you know, implement based on that. It increased our satisfaction rates with our clients tremendously. It led to more effective project delivery. And we found ourselves going back less of the time to go fix stuff. So it was a much, it was a very efficient process. And it was a very rewarding process because at the end of the day, we knew that the clients were a part of the journey and they were satisfied. When I was starting to get re-involved with community work, I also recognized this trend as well from a lot of the nonprofits. We would come in as well-intentioned, well-educated individuals to a roundtable to discuss issues and propose solutions. But none of the folks that were that were going to be served were at the table. So again, we're basing everything on assumption without having any idea of the life, the experiences that these individuals are going through. So even though these may be great ideas, they may not necessarily be great solutions. So for us, COACT is really about utilizing this human-centered methodology with a splice of systems thinking so we can take intentional efforts to connect with those that we want to serve and make sure that the solutions that we're delivering are going to be beneficial. It's really about creating better solutions and about understanding the intimacy of these challenges and, you know, kind of reflecting on my own past, knowing those little subtle details that can be triggers or that could be opportunities to create really great solutions. So that's what COACT is about. 
It sounds, you're right. It sounds very simple and yet it's hardly ever done. I mean, working in a lot of nonprofits myself, you have a board, you have leadership who wants to enact all of these things, but are you really talking to the people that it's going to affect most? And oftentimes it's no. Most, more than, more often than not, it's no. And to be able to have that is really huge. So what types of things are you touching? And I think the other thing, sorry. Oh, no, no, no. What types of things are you touching within that? So right now, I mean, we, we, I guess this is the other interesting thing. We actually got our nonprofit certification this year, right before the pandemic hit. So it's been very interesting, like adjusting. But in this arena, we have three areas of focus right now. Uh, we're focusing on college homelessness uh, throughout Tarrant County. We're focusing on food insecurity in Southeast Fort Worth. And then we just recently launched a project around COVID-19. And what we're looking at is how do we create community-specific responses to areas that COVID-19 impacts our lives. Jesse, you were meant for this. Like the fact that you started right before COVID and everything and the things that you're focusing on. I mean, obviously, you know, there's kids going to college that were probably really depending on being in the dorms or being in some sort of campus housing or student housing or something that were unable to because they weren't able to go back to campus and probably don't know where to go or didn't know where to go. Food insecurity has been such a huge thing, just not only in general, but even especially during this kind of time of COVID. And then obviously adding a COVID specific aspect. I think that is so amazing. Seriously. I want to talk about college homelessness, right? Real quick, because what type of thing, what made you want to focus on that in Tarrant? Is that something that you've been finding is, has been a very, that has been a really big issue in Tarrant County? And is it something that's been, you know, exponentially impacted with COVID? The short answer is yes, but how we came to working on it was actually by accident. We stumbled on this. So when we were, when I was looking to develop this organization, um, I embarked on quite a few international trips, looking at different models, looking at different social innovation labs across the globe, looking at social enterprises and advancements in technology that other cities and entrepreneurs were using to solve unique problems. Uh, this was about a three-year journey, and it took me to uh, Germany, it took me to South Korea, to Singapore, to all across the United States, Montreal, Vancouver. And the model that I landed on was out of Vancouver called the Local Economic Development Lab. They were doing some really impressive stuff using human-centered design and really being this aggregator to foster collective impact. So a lot of our uh, methodologies came from this organization. So after we did all this research, we figured, all right, maybe it's a good idea to test some of these ideas before we go full on front with developing an organization that's actually going to do this. So uh, we launched a series called City Talk roughly about two years ago. And the idea was just to talk about interesting topics. Uh, And the first topic that we chose was hostile architecture. We figured it was probably a topic not many folks were familiar with, and it would give us an interesting opportunity just to go through and audit the city of Fort Worth and see what kind of instances of hostile architecture we could find. What is hostile architecture? (laughs) It's the intentional or unintentional design of spaces or details in spaces that infringe on certain classes of people or certain individuals. So typically the way that you see this is going to be, you know, subtleties in design that prohibit homeless individuals from being able to utilize certain spaces. So in New York, you know, this could be, you know, not putting any benches out in a large public plaza in areas like Fort Worth, California, Seattle. This could be, you know, putting the arm bars on public benches. And, you know, many think that they're there for you to be comfortable, but they're there intentionally to keep people from sleeping on the benches. Um, You might also see these very artistic benches that have these subtle curves. Those are designed to be uncomfortable, intentionally uncomfortable, so you don't linger. So there are little things that we do here and there in our day-to-day life that are done for very specific reasons, and we may not necessarily know that. So the idea was, okay, we did this audit. We identified these areas of hostile architecture in the city, and one that was really unique for us Uh, They actually put speed bumps on the handrails in the water gardens, and those were designed intentionally to keep skateboarders from grinding on them. And again, it it becomes an argument, you know, is that something that's bad or good? But, you know, we brought this, you know, we brought a forum together to discuss this. And the idea was, let's explore this topic. 
Let's see what it really means. And let's see what, you know, if we don't feel comfortable with this, what we want to do to actually change this. Right. Through that conversation, one of the participants was a staff member at TCC. And she revealed to us that she was this, she was seeing an increasing percentage of students experiencing homelessness. And for everyone in this room, that was a shock factor. I mean, we dropped silent for about 10 seconds, you know, just processing what we heard. And we made a commitment that day. So, all right, this is a really fucked up situation. We need to do something about it. We don't know what we're going to do, but we're committing to doing something. So that started the journey. And two years later, you know, we've gathered together multiple roundtables. We've hosted additional forums to further explore the issue. We've connected with students, interviewed with students, and really, you know, tried to learn as much as we can about this challenge. In Tarrant County alone, 52% of the students are experiencing housing insecurity. So that means any moment, any sudden change in life, a speed bump, they could be on the street. Wow. What is causing this type of housing insecurity? Part of it is we don't have an abundant, uh, an abundant stock of uh, affordable housing units in the DFW area. And the other part of it is just the cost of living. It's gone up uh, astronomically. It costs a lot to get an apartment. It costs a lot to own a car. It costs a lot to have car insurance and medical insurance. And, you know, the jobs that we offer for a student or an individual right out of high school don't really offer much in terms of pay. Right. Make it in Tarrant County with the current minimum wage, one would have to work 110 hours a week. And there's a problem with that because there's only 160 hours available in a given week. Yeah. Wow. And you think of that and you take that into other cities. And I can only imagine how it's affecting students in, uh, across the nation because you come to a place like San Diego, right, where cost of living is way more than it is there. And I can't even, I don't even think so many, a lot of people have thought about housing insecurity, like for students. I honestly don't. And the fact that you're addressing it and want to bring it to light, I think is a really big thing. How are you working with those students? So how, okay, let me, this is a two-parter question. First, how did you keep moving forward, starting a nonprofit during a time of COVID? And then also how are now, now that you've done this research and everything in regards to college homelessness, how are you guys working to address it? So I think um, to answer the first question, like how we're, I guess, continuing the momentum and how we engage with the students. While I was working at TCC, I was very fortunate in building some really strong relationships. And one of those relationships happens to be a young lady that works at South Campus who runs what's called the Family Empowerment Center. And it's kind of a one-stop shop specific to that campus that aligns students to resources. So we've been working alongside her ever since I left TCC to foster this relationship and really start thinking more strategically with how we engage the students. She was the one that was initially able to align us to the first students that we interviewed and to be able to help us get, you know, a foot in with uh, hosting a forum with the students at one of their events. So I think that's probably the first key piece of this. Coming into COVID, so we did all this work prior to getting our nonprofit established. We submitted our paperwork, waited for our paperwork. It took roughly about a year to complete the entire process from conception to filing the paperwork to eventually getting our certification. And when we uh, started this year, we had this idea of doing these series of events, additional forums to not only explore college homelessness, but to explore affordable housing. Because we had identified, all right, we got 52% of the students that are experiencing housing insecurity. We don't have abundant housing stock. We need housing solutions. So the idea was, okay, through a series of forums, we can get better acquainted with affordable housing and then come up with some strategies to create like a prototype. And that prototype would allow us to basically create a toolkit that not only our organization, but any other organization could build from. So we're not the only ones in this arena. COVID happened and we had to basically throw that entire plan out the window because we were going to be doing all these in-person events and, you know, we were trying to build up our visibility and then we were talking about doing a launch event. So we had to remain stagnant for about a month just to kind of collect our thoughts and figure, all right, what the fuck are we going to do? Like, we just got our certification. We have zero funds. I left a very stable job, you know, and I can't stay like, you know, in this period of stagnation forever. You know, I was fortunate that I was still doing contract work, but I mean, there was a limit to how much I was actually going to be able to, to pay. Right. So, um, we got together with my team, um, which I forgot to mention. So Coact isn't just myself. Coact is a collective. Um, it's me, uh, Miss Amanda Arizola, one of my best friends. I know Amanda. Great, awesome human being. And then another gentleman named Juan Villapano that I've worked for for about 10 years. He's a great architect. 
uh, awesome project manager. I mean, he's uh, he's got a real keen eye for the details. So together we make Coact, and it's interesting because we're we're 100% Latino, you know, executive team nonprofit. So we throw this idea, and you know, we had to scrap this initial idea, and then we discuss. Okay, well, everyone else is going to these online meetings. Maybe we should consider the same. So we shifted all of our events online. Uh, started doing uh, Zoom meetings, and we figured, okay, you know, why don't we go ahead and start all over from scratch? We'll start from the very first uh, forum on hostile architecture. We'll repeat each of the forums that we've done up to this point, and then we'll take it from there and do the rest of the forums that we had scheduled out. That way we can kind of get everyone to the same page. And this worked out pretty well for us. Um, you know, the first forum, I think we got roughly about eight, and then we were steadily getting about 10 or 12 every single forum. And I mean, a lot of these were newcomers and we also had a lot of repeat visitors as well. So, I mean, the content, you know, was appreciated seeing how, you know, everything else in the also world came to a halt and allowed us some additional opportunities to engage with the students that weren't previously available. So um, this brought us back to the young lady I mentioned at TCC, and she was able to introduce us with a group called Phi Theta Kappa, which is an honor society at Tarrant County College. And they identified that they wanted to do a college project around college homelessness. So we met with them through Zoom, got acquainted, uh, went over what we were doing and some of the goals we were trying to achieve. They ended up taking this idea to the president of South Campus and the project got approved. So we worked with them over the past couple months, developing you know this framework to do not only a homeless summit, but to help them de- develop a student, like a grassroots student group that would be a key resource for other students experiencing this and it would be a resource for us as an organization to build to recruit champions to help us with guiding our projects and helping us identify solutions. So I think with everything slowing down in COVID, it was a huge benefit for us, especially as a startup nonprofit, to get some light that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to get. That's really awesome. Is this something that's duplicatable? In like, for example, if somebody's hearing this in different cities and was like, we didn't know about this. This is something we want to address. This is something we want to talk about. Is this something that is duplicatable in other places as well? You talk about like the forums and the framework. Yeah, and like, and just in being able to kind of have a roadmap in regards to what you're doing with COACT, if, you know what I mean? Um, outside of outside of Fort Worth. If somebody outside of Fort Worth saw what you're doing and was like, this is really cool. I want to be, be able to bring something similar to here or even bring COACT here, right? Is this something that's duplicatable into other into other communities? Yeah. I mean, I mean, honestly for us, I mean, the long-term vision is that we would have multiple chapters across the nation that would be able to work and help organizations be able to discover these new solutions. But the methodology that we're using is widely available. Ideo.org actually put together a really good comprehensive handbook on human-centered design, and it kind of goes through all the steps and the toolkits that they use to engage with communities and to be able to turn these ideas into tangible solutions. So I think that's a, a good starting point. You know, the trick is, you know, once you get familiar with the framework, what things do you integrate, change, you know, to better fit your demographic where you're going to be doing your service? You know, for us, I mean, we're taking the forum aspect a little bit more. Uh, we're, we're building the forum aspect into a more integral part of our operation just because we like to talk here. We're, we're very friendly. We like to see the phase. Forward's also a lot slower, so it kind of just fits with the vibe that we that we have in Forward. But, you know, when you're on board of Forward, they're, they're loyal. They're there with you to the end. If people want to know more about COACT, how can they find out more about what you do? How can they donate? How can they, what, like, where can they go to kind of find more information? So our biggest hub of resource is going to be our website, www.coactntx.org. Uh, but we're also uh, on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Um, hoping to get on Instagram maybe early next year once I get a little bit more time. But uh, we do regular posts uh, just to share updates with our projects um, and also recruit folks that want to get in more engaged. Um, you know, for us, I mean, especially now in the time of COVID, it's an ideal opportunity to engage. Um, we have steering committees for every one of the projects that we're doing. And some of these steering committee members don't even live in Fort I mean, we recently recruited one that's in uh, San Angelo right now uh, that's helping us with, um, you know, this college homeless project. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there are multiple ways to engage. It just depends on how dirty you want to get your hands. 
When I asked you to describe your life in one word, you said forged. Tell me why you chose that word. For me, just looking at my past, looking at my lived experiences, looking at the lessons that I've extrapolated from my career, it's very much like forging steel. You have to hammer and hammer and hone and shape it and bend it and forge it again and hammer it again. So it's just a lot of bumps on the head and it's a lot of tenuous work. And, you know, it takes persistence when you're forging steel. It's not something that you can just whip out overnight. I mean, if you really want to do it right, you have to take the time to actually delicately manipulate the material and hone it into the shape and the purpose that you want it to, to function. In. And, you know, we'll take something that's a personal passion of mine, knives and cooking. If you want to make a really good knife, it takes time to actually fold the steel and hammer it to shape and get it with a nice razor edge. It takes persistence and, you know, a bit of, a bit of uh, patience to go through the arduous task of actually doing this. Cause I mean, you could easily just buy one that was milled out of a, out of, out of a factory, but if you want to get a hand forged knife, there's a certain level of pain that comes with it. But that pain is, you know, the experience of every other individual that has taught blacksmithing and forging so it's, you know, reliving those lived experiences through the craft that you're creating. So for me, you know, I feel like through my lived experiences and through the lessons that I've taken through life, my work methodology and my life methodology have very much been forged. You know, it's forged on all the you know mistakes I've made in the past, forged on this tumultuous past that I've had and forged on the life lessons and the friends that I've made that have, you know, graced me with their time. I want to make sure I give you an opportunity if there's something that I didn't ask you because, you know, you went through a lot and you've shared a lot, but is there anything else that you want to say that I may have not asked? Let's see. Or am I just that good? (laughs) I mean, you're good. I mean, you're, you're definitely, you know, you've always been one of my favorite people to chat with though, but I, I would say this, I mean, you know, if we, if we look at homelessness, just for a second. And I was actually talking about this with some students earlier this week at a jury review. There's a lot of misconceptions that come with homelessness. If we can accept that, then that means there's often a lot of misconceptions that come with a lot of the problems that we experience in life. So what I challenge everyone is, you know, have an open ear, have an open ear to these experiences, have an open ear to these traumatic experiences, these events that we see in life have an open ear to those that may be experiencing these things. A homeless individual, you know, in in the case of the students that we've been serving, isn't what we come accustomed to or what we see on TV, you know, some battered up individual living on the street, you know, asking for money, asking for food. They're students, they're single mothers, they're returning vets. They're individuals that have passion, they have purpose, they have, you know, resourcefulness. They just got thrown, you know, a couple bad moments in life. And what we've learned is, from for those experiencing homelessness, it's often perpetrated by a loss of a support system. That support system becomes integral in how you navigate life. It gives you a confidence, a stride in life that one that does not have a support system often lacks. It gives you the luxury of being able to think beyond the week, to think beyond the month, to think beyond the minute. So we have to be appreciative of that. And at the end of the day, these are people. They deserve our dignity. Ending up on the street at a point where you're begging for food, takes a lot. And I'm speaking from another friend, uh, one of the students that we interviewed that has become a real close friend. It takes a lot for an individual to get to that point. It's not like you just end up, you know, in the street and you're begging for food the next day. It takes- And nobody wants to be there. Nobody wants to beg for food. Nobody wants to, you don't grow up saying, oh, I hope that one day I'm on the corner begging for food and money. Absolutely. You, You don't. And- to get to that point where you're actually walking up to a complete stranger to ask for a nickel, to ask for a dollar, it takes a lot. And there's a lot of steps you have to go through to get to that point. So that's a journey with this experience. So I said all that to say this, having an open ear to these experiences, whatever they may be, it's gonna give us an opportunity to learn more and become more intimate with these challenges. As we become more intimate with these challenges, then we can better propose how we might solve these challenges. If we can start unmaking some of the taboo that we have with these topics, I think it's going to make us as citizens, as contributing members of society, much more adept at being able to solve these problems and be able to offer support that's needed and not the support that we think is needed. Jesse, I love talking to you too, because we always, we never just have chit chat, right? Anytime we talk, it's never just chit chat. We always talk about something meaningful. And that is something that I really appreciate about you. 
what is something that no matter what, no matter how you're feeling, can just lift you up and make you smile? Ooh, well, I mean, I am a mother's boy, if I'm going to be honest. I mean, mama's boy to the heart. So always visiting my mom is is a good thing, especially when she comes with compliments, because uh, without getting too deep on another tangent, mama is uh, very brutally honest. <laughs> you know, if I may tell you, tell one funny story. I remember of course, people are probably like, dang, this is a deep episode. Bring some funny. <laughs> so, like as Latinos, especially as the men, there's always like an uncle or, or a, a male figure in the family that's like, you know, like that can just aspire you or just really lift up your spirits, especially when they acknowledge like you've gotten to that threshold, like you've earned their respect. Right. Me, that was my uncle Speedy. You know, he's a welder. He's uh, helped my mom through a lot of situations. I mean, he's kind of been like a father figure. And I remember right after I got my degree, we went to go have Thanksgiving at his house. And uh, he was like, oh, you know, mijo, if, you know, if you if I was still young and I had my welding, my welding equipment, you know, you'd be the first one I'd hire, you know, and you'd be there right beside me. We'd make some great things. And, you know, that lifted the spirits like, oh, well, thank you, Uncle. you know, I appreciate that. And my mom like, man, that fool ain't going to help you. He's a fucking architect. He ain't going to get his fucking hands dirty. <laughs> it's like shredded all that confidence. It's like, well, thanks, Ma. Thanks. <laughs> so like seeing her is always a warm, is always, you know, helps lift the spirits. Um, but another thing is just cooking. Like I've, um, you know, for me, like my creative passion really comes out in cooking. Uh, and especially now that we're in, you know, we're in quarantine. I mean, cooking has really been a way for me to like vent and to decompress and really just experiment with some of that creative itch that I get. Hence why I'm drinking beer today, because uh, yesterday's creative itch was a tuna tower. So I bought some ingredients and uh, a beer to match it. There you go. Well, what is so the last question I have, and we always bookend it, start with the wine and with wine. What is your favorite type of wine, red, white or rosé? And do you have a specific brand that you like? I like a red wine. I'm very fond of Malbecs. And one that I've been finding myself going back to with frequency has been Trapiche. All right. Well, I'm going to have, I've not, I don't think I've tried that one. So I'm going to have to add that to, to my list. But Jesse, thank you so much. I knew I wanted to have you on and I knew that you had started Coac. Like I said, I know that we had talked about different projects that you were looking on. So to see this actually come to fruition for you, I'm really happy for you. I'm really happy. I know that you and Amanda and the other person on your team are going to really, truly make an impact. And I'm proud to know you. I appreciate that. Uh, It's been a pleasure talking and it's been a pleasure getting to know you and knowing you over these years. I mean, it's hard to believe it's been six, six years already. So, you know, hopefully uh, depending on how 2021, 2022 comes, We'll be able to meet in person and enjoy, you know, a sip of wine. Yes. Well, until next time, mi gente. Until next Thank time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Cheese Med Podcast. For more information on today's guest, please see the show notes for links to websites and social media channels. You can check out all things Wine and Cheese Med on our website, thewineandcheesemedpodcast.com. There, you will find the names of wines I drink each episode as well as additional information on me, the podcast, and you can even apply to be a guest straight from there. You can also find us on social media at The Wine and Cheesemit on Instagram and at The Wine and Cheesemit Podcast on Facebook. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Cheesemit, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are appreciated and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, saludos.